0: The following sermon by our guest speaker is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. This has been already an incredibly helpful men's breakfast for me. I've never been to one when we've been schooled on barbecue and all the intricacies and the things I need to know. So this, is, this has been very, very helpful for, to me, very sanctifying. Um, so... Um, in fact, I don't know what I can add to this. This seems like that that even relates, you know, relates to masculinity and manhood. I mean, there's all kinds of connections there. So, it seems to me that if you've got all that down, you're far down the path, you know, of being a a, a Christian man. Well, we are going to talk about that though a little bit more this morning. Uh, talk about uh, leadership in a sense, I guess, uh, male uh, leadership. Uh, manhood, masculinity, we're certainly not going to be able to say everything that the Bible might say about that, but I just want to make some brief comments, I guess, and a good place in Scripture for us to turn to on that topic, one of many good places, is 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 13 through 14. 1 Corinthians 16, 13 through 14. It says this, Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all you do be done in love. I think that's a a great phrase for us to pull out there. I'm borrowing a Bible here from your pastor, Rick Holland, and he has that little phrase even highlighted there already, act like men act like men. That's what I want to talk to you about this morning a little bit. What it means to understand and live out Christian manhood or what it means to act like a man. Now, that tells us something already. There is a such thing as manhood then. There's a such thing as Christian manhood and that tells us there is something called Christian womanhood. They're not the same. Because there's a God-made difference between men and women. Now, if some of you have not noticed that there are some differences between men and women, okay, well, there's some other meetings and seminars that I think you need to to have along the way, some lengthy counseling sessions, perhaps. We are different, and it's more than just physical, this difference that's there. That's certainly uh, there, and we're grateful for it, but there are other differences, If we go all the way back to the beginning of Scripture, we we get those broad principles that, first of all, we're equal before the Lord. I mean, there's a lot of things about us that promotes equality, men and women. Uh, We uh, stand equally before God. We're each made in the image of God. We stand equally as sinners before God in need of salvation. So there's a lot of ways we can stress our equality. But from the very beginning of Scripture onward, there is a difference as well. A God-designed difference. Equality in our standing before God, but yet when God made men and then saved men, he made them and saved them to be something distinctly different from women. It's not a matter of superiority and inferiority. That's not it. It's a matter of just intended difference from God's perspective. So what is Christian manhood then? That's what we're trying to To deal with this morning? How does the Bible define it? How does the Bible describe it? And also, in addition to that, I'm going to take some moments today, at least I hope you don't mind me doing this, I want to share some real life Christian manhood stories, Okay, present to you just uh, two or three of my own heroes that I've kind of come across in the last year or two of my life as I've done some reading. I'll share some things about that at the end here. But let's look at this verse, these two verses, to at least get a, a taste of what biblical manhood is all about. And I believe that phrase, act like men, uh, is, a, is, a, is a good phrase, but it's defined really by what is surrounding it in these two verses. It's defined and explained by what's before it and what's after it. So I think that's a, a good phrase to be the pivotal phrase for both these two verses And what is before it and what is after it basically gives us two broad general facts about Christian manhood. Those two facts are something like this, and then we'll break them down and talk about them. Here's one fact. If you look at what's before it and what's after it, certainly one fact is this. A Christian man is to be strong. He's to be strong In order to embrace the responsibilities of life that God has given to him. So there's something here about strength. In more than one phrase that emphasized that side of it. Strong, to embrace the responsibilities of life. But there's something else here as well in these two verses. A Christian man is to be not just strong, he is to be sensitive. He's to be sensitive so that he is able to pursue relationships in life. Both of these are important. Both sides are important. So let's talk about that first one. A Christian man is to be strong in order to embrace the responsibilities of life. I've been reading some things about this recently been listening to some seminars on this. It's impacted my own life, uh, especially just some reading from a man named uh, Harry Reader. He really challenged me in some ways in my own life. But a uh, Christian man is to be strong to embrace the responsibilities of life. Now, we find that referenced in the following exhortations here that let us know what this strength consists of. This strength is made up of some elements, some ingredients. Here's one. I'm just going to call it vigilance. For me to be strong in order to embrace and fulfill the responsibilities of life that God gives me as a Christian man, I certainly need to be vigilant. This strength is made up of vigilance. And we find that idea in that first expression, be on the alert. You could translate that, be watchful. It is the idea of staying awake and, and, and having our uh, being on guard. We're not to live our lives carelessly it's a call for watchfulness and we understand why that's so important as christian men we are we get up every day facing attack okay all around us and even if there wasn't anything around us we carry with us something called unredeemed humanity the bible calls it the flesh it never changes the flesh never gets any better it doesn't become more holy you can't sanctify the flesh the flesh is just the flesh the principle of indwelling sin, unredeemed humanist that we carry with us even though we have a new position in Christ, a new orientation toward him. This ends up being a call then for watchfulness with regard to Satan and his temptations and the world around us and the very flesh that we carry with us. Let me read you another verse that's similar to this. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Peter writes, Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Be on the alert. Strength, Christian manhood strength, consists certainly of vigilance. This is the idea of a soldier, a soldier who's in the military and and he has guard duty. He's got to keep his eyes open. We have to be that way. We can't be lazy about this. We can't. We can't go through life every day just naive. We have to have our eyes open to watch for danger, especially the danger of temptation to sin. Temptation is all around us. And that inborn tendency in our humanness that wants to sin is there. So we, we take this seriously as Christian men, as leaders in the church, which we're supposed to be leaders in our family. We need to be on guard. We need to be steadfast. We can't become lazy when it comes to temptation. It's just too dangerous. There's too many dangers that lurk around us. But if we're vigilant, then we can spot them. We can be ready for them. We can detect the danger early so that we are able to avoid then falling into a sin. So Again, just briefly this morning, that's one ingredient that makes up this strength that's part of being a Christian man and acting like a man. There's another ingredient here. I'm going to call it determination. Determination. Vigilance and determination. It says not only are we to be watchful, but we are to stand firm in the faith. We're to stand firm. We're not to give any ground to the enemy at all. And I do see that as a call to determination, but it's a certain kind of of determination. Paul's telling us that we must take definite stands for what is right. We must take determined stands to maintain what the truth is. And we're to maintain and take a determined stand in it at all cost. A Christian man loves truth so much that he's willing to stand for it at all cost circumstances aren't going to dictate what he believes about truth. Now that just necessitates that we know what the truth is then. We have to, as men, work hard at understanding the truth. It is sad how many times I see in families, in my own church and other churches that I've been a part of, how many times it's the, the wife or the mother in the home that's more spiritually minded, reading, studying, wanting to know more, asking questions. And men can become so lazy in this, but as a Christian man, we need to work hard of knowing what the faith is and standing firm in it, studying diligently the Word of God. I am encouraged to know that you have that time every Wednesday morning and, and studying systematic theology and all of that. That's wonderful. And what we are learning, we're to hold on to. No matter what the world says that's different. And that's what happens. That's the real test. We're bombarded with a worldview that is totally different than this. What scripture says. I think I mentioned this last night that I'm studying Hosea. And I mentioned this little phrase in there that, that just so, it caused me to stop my study and just ponder all the implications for today that God's people had come to a place of thinking the truth was strange. Strange. Our world thinks the truth that we believe is strange. And it's getting more and more and more strange to them. And here we are, like salmon swimming upstream against all that, holding on to the, to the truth. And it doesn't matter what the world says, but yet so many people are caving in. It's so, you get bombarded and bombarded and bombarded, and so many people are caving in and, and changing their perspectives about things and letting go of that determined stand on the truth. This actually is another military idea here. It's like being on guard is sort of the idea of a sentry or a guard on a wall or something. This is another military idea. I tell you, the idea here is it's not deserting. A deserter, someone who goes a AWOL, in this case, it's not deserting sound doctrine. So to act like a man, we're going to be vigilant. We're going to have our antennas up, our radars up for the dangers that are all around us. We're going to be watching for them. We're not going to be lazy about it. How long? rest of our lives. Especially when it comes to sexual temptation and sexual lust. I mean, that's not getting any easier. Someone asked me recently, you know, how long, pastor? I mean, or am I going to have to fight this problem, lust, the temptation to sexual lust? At what age does it finally stop being so strong? And every year my answer is different. This year it's, well, it's not 59. That's all I can tell you. I said this recently at our church, and a, an older gentleman who's 85 came up to me afterwards and kind of leaned over, leaned over and whispered, and he said, it's not 85 either. You yeah. know, rest of our lives. A man doesn't give up. He's vigilant and he's determined for the truth. It doesn't matter what the world is saying and everybody you work with at your job and how they keep saying things and saying things and, and situations in your families that start erode, softening your, 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 your stand toward the truth. No, we're to be vigilant and determined. There's a third ingredient here and I think we all certainly would expect this one. It says act like men then, but Be strong. I'll tell you what the ingredient is. It's courage. That's really referring to courage. I mean, these are three good, necessary ingredients that make up what manliness is all about. Vigilance and determination and and courage. That's the idea captured in that phrase of being strong. It's be courageous. To act like a man even means to be courageous as well. As opposed to being a coward. And this kind of courage is seen not just in the fact that I'm willing to take a bullet for my wife if somebody attacks us. Well, that too. (laughs) At least that. But not many of us are going to be faced with that. It's a courage to not run from problems. It'd be like the proverbial ostrich that sticks its head in the sand. I read somewhere that that's total myth, that no ostrich does that. But it's a good picture, though. It works. We understand it. You know, I just, I don't want to know what's going on in my family, and I'll let my wife deal with it, and she can handle the problems with the kids, and running from problems in the church, and running from problems in the world, whatever, there is a courage here that's necessary, in a, that's seen in a willingness to accept responsibility. That's Courage. I'm not going to run from problems. If there's a problem, I'm not going to let it defeat me. I'm not going to let it discourage me. I'm going to see it for what it is, and I'm going to begin to take some steps to attack it and to resolve it the best I can. And Tomorrow there's another one, and the next day there's another one, and then there's another one. That's life as well. It takes courage to deal with problems and not run from them. It takes courage to accept responsibility, not just to take bullets. Real men don't run from responsibility. Real men find out what's required of them, and they do it. Once again, no matter the cost. doesn't matter what the cost is. That's one real sign of maturity. And I don't, I mean, I'm still training my young men in my home. One's 22, and the other one's 27. And So it never stops. I mean, my role changes somewhat, you know, now definitely in their lives. But still, I'm there a resource for them of continuing to challenge them, to point them in the right direction of what it means to to mature. Because definitely I've seen that along the way, that a boy who's maturing into a man is, is a boy who's starting to see what responsibility is and taking responsibility and being responsible, understanding what their duties are and then completing the task no matter the cost. That's a sign of real maturity. So, I'm just saying, being manly does mean strength. The kind of strength that's being manifested in vigilance so that we're not caught unaware by temptation and sin. It's the kind of strength that's manifested in determination that I'm going to take a stand for what is right and live by my convictions. Convictions that are biblically informed, there are those situations where people have preferences about things and they've tried to say they're convictions, they're really preferences. But things that are convictions, that are based upon clear teaching of what the truth is and the essence of our faith, we have to hold on to those things and be determined. And It's a kind of strength that's manifested in courage. The courage to embrace problems and take care of them. Hold your place here for a moment. Turn back to 1 Corinthians 4. In the same book you see an example of some of this in the Apostle Paul's life. I really do think he was not one who just wrote about things like this. I believe he took it seriously for his own life. If you look at the end of 1 Corinthians 4, starting in verse 14, from 14 through 21, you find the the end of a section of the first four chapters where he's been in a broad stroke dealing with a lot of problems in the the city of Corinth. They're depreciating of the gospel, they're imbibing of worldly wisdom and trying to bring it in and mix it with the gospel and all that their uh, tendency to uh, chase after certain leaders and be devoted to certain leaders and not others, and there was division in the church over that. So starting in chapter 5, he starts addressing particular questions. But first four chapters dealing with the big picture, the global problems in the church in Corinth. So 14 through 21 is kind of the end of that. But he's wrapping all that up, the confrontation and the exhortations there. But what really strikes me is not only what he says To them about their issues, but how he models a Christian leader, a man. And you see these elements of strength in his life. You look down to verse, well, just 14 through 17 in general, he's addressing the problems. He's not running from them, he's he's been addressing them. He's determined in that. And and what he can't do in verse 17, he's going to, to send Timothy there to deal with some things. And he's He's saying that I'm going to come to you soon. Verse 19, I'm I'm determined. I'm not going to run from problems. I'm going to try to deal with these things. And he even you see the courage in verse 21. He says, if necessary, I'll come with a rod. I'll exercise authority if that's what I have to do. I'm not going to run from problems. He was a courageous man. He was a determined man. And he was concerned about his own life. In fact, in verse 17, he says, listen, you can ask Timothy, he'll tell you what my ways are like everywhere I go, just as I teach. What I teach, I seek to live out, which is why in verse 16 he said, be imitators of me. That's not a prideful statement. He's just saying, I take these things seriously for my own life. He cared about character, and he exemplifies strength. Go back to our passage, because there's the other side of all this. There's this side of strength It's made up of vigilance and determination and courage, but the second overall fact of Christian manhood is this. A Christian man is to be sensitive as well because we need to be involved in relationships in life. We need to pursue relationships in our family and in the church, and that takes a a great deal of sensitivity here. I'm using that word just because it starts with S, and I had the word strength, and it started with S, but... Where do we see that? I mean, all this stuff about being on the alert, standing firm, act like men, be strong, amen, and let all you do be done in love. It's almost the feminine side. That's the other side of this. I mean, all this other can get distorted. You can be domineering in your leadership and your family and in the church. You can be caustic and abrasive and arrogant and all those things. There's a whole another side of this that's manhood. This is what balances all of that. All those virtues that are considered clearly manly. It's very important that we balance acting like a man with this. Let all you do be done in love. I mean, there is a sensitivity then that we're we're living with, that we're not just abrasive and arrogant and caustic, that there's a side to us that also understands what compassion is. That would be included in this, this softer side of love, that we have compassion on those who are hurting, those who are struggling. We have compassion toward our our wife, compassion toward our children. We're not just barking out orders all the time, but there's there's a, a level of compassion that they know this there as well because they know you love them. I could throw in the word mercy. I think that's included in this idea. There's a sense of mercy there. I mean, it's all of this that has to do with developing relationships. We're to be relational. As men, we're to develop relationships, and we are to sustain relationships. And we develop them and sustain them because we're exercising this virtue here. So a true man is someone, yes, who's willing to deal with the issues in life and be courageous and be strong, but a true godly man embraces relationships in life. He's not a loner. There's no such thing like that in Scripture. A true Christian man understands the significance of of tenderness. He understands sensitivity. He understands the significance of patience with people so that we're not frustrated and irritated with our wife or our children or people in the church. There's a great significance in these things of embracing what's necessary to develop and sustain the relationships of life. Look back to that same passage, by the way, 1 Corinthians 4 again. What's interesting to me about the Apostle Paul is is he's such a great balance here in this. In verse 14, as he wraps up all this confrontation, he, he gives you a little insight into this side of his life as well. I mean, the strong, courageous Apostle Paul... He says, I do not write these things to shame you. And that word means to move on your your emotions, to try to manipulate you in some way. He didn't have a hidden agenda. He says, Here's why I'm admonishing you as my beloved children. That's a statement of compassion and mercy and patience and tenderness and sensitivity. It's a statement of love. He loved these people. And that's amazing when you think about the kind of people they were, you know. There's a lot of problems here in this church. I don't know that these are the most lovable people. And he says, I loved you. In fact, he illustrates it. He says, you've had countless tutors in Christ, and it's this word of, it's kind of hard for us to understand that in our culture, but it would generally be a slave that would be put in charge of training the children, teaching them and And uh, teaching them grammar and dictation and reviewing their math tables with them and taking them to school and reviewing their Iwana verses and all those kind of things. A slave would do that. And so that slave would be very important, that tutor in the life of the child, but it's still not the same thing as a father. A father conveys intimacy and love and compassion and tenderness. And so that's what he says. He says, you've had a lot of tutors in your Christian life even, but not many fathers. But in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. And it's true. I mean, he's the one that ended up waltzing into this evil city and preached the gospel, and people were saved, and a church was formed. So he literally did bring the gospel in that sense, and he was their spiritual father. But he uses that metaphor to say something to convey this idea that this is why I'm writing you. I mean, really what's motivating me to even deal with these problems is just because there's such a level of concern in my life for you. So We can ask ourselves that about our family members, if we're married, our wife. Does our wife see both sides of this in us? Are we vigilant? Are we determined? Are we men of courage? dealing with the issues that come up, but, but is there that side of us that they also trust us because they know we have her best interests at heart? The children know that we really love them, we have their best interest at heart. So when he says, I exhort you, be imitators of me, and he says later, again, he says it a little more completely, he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ, is the idea. Do we see both sides of this in our lives? The strength, the courage, the acting like men, the manliness in that sense, but manliness that's also expressed in this tenderness and compassion. You know, one more that just came to mind, First uh, Thessalonians 2. I never had a Bible that has tabs in it like this. This is very helpful. Wow. I wish I had this in my ordination, you know, process. 1 Thessalonians 2, you get a little window into Paul's heart as well there. A lot there he's telling you about his ministry among the Thessalonicans, you know, Thessalonians, but a lot there I'm not going to go into in chapter 2, but I'm just going to jump down verse 7. I mean, here's a man that exercises authority. He is the apostle. He's even saying, I, you know, I, I could even be that way with you, but. Look at verse 7, but we proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. I mean, that's how they knew the apostle Paul. They thought of him that way. I think if you really ask them years later, those who were still alive after Paul was gone, you remember your pastor Paul? You know, oh, yes, we remember him. He loved us so much. I don't know that they would say, oh, Paul... The super apostle, the great theologian. I think they saw him that way, but at the same time, I think they would remember him, the one who loved us so much. And and here's that side of tenderness, and he even uses the the picture of a woman to convey it, like a nursing mother. That's one of the most tender scenes you could possibly conjure up in your mind, a a mother's tender care for her child as she nurses that baby. He said, we were gentle like that with you. Verse 8, having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel, the the data, the information, but I gave you my own life because you'd become so dear to me, to us. He really is a good example of this. There are others in Scripture. I, I think that we can see both sides of this. So I'm just giving you the two broad strokes today. If you want to summarize Christian manhood, this is what it is. Strength and sensitivity. Okay. That wraps it all up right there. You're seeking to live those things out. You're being a godly man in your family. You're being a godly man in this church. You see it others as well. I, I think we can see it in, in David. Yeah, we're going to see it in men who who are not perfect. I mean, they fail. I mean, that's not something for us to hide behind, but it, it does give me encouragement, you know, that David is known for his great failure, but he's also an example for us in many ways. He had faults, but he was he was a strong and courageous man, actually. Overall, I mean, David was characterized by courage. I mean, that goes back early in his life as a young shepherd boy. I mean, he. You think he wasn't courageous, or whether he was courageous or not, just ask the lion that would creep near the sheep. <laughs> you know, David would deal with it, or the bear. And remember the song they used to sing, you know, that drove Saul crazy? Saul has slain his thousands, David is ten thousands. I mean, he is a great military leader and exercised courage. What about the other side? Was David a sensitive and compassionate man? Well, there I just refer you to the Psalms. I mean, read the Psalms. Here's a man whose heart was tender, compassionate, soft. You read the Psalms and you find this transparency of his heart and his soul there. That's not unmanly. You You can look at David, other men. I mean, obviously the most important person we could ever look at would be Christ himself. I mean, look at Jesus, and there's many examples there we could find in our Lord how he manifested both sides of this manliness, strength and courage and determination and vigilance and compassion and softness and tenderness. You see his strength and courage. I mean, look at how he dealt with the Pharisees. He stood for truth. He wouldn't back down, and he wasn't afraid to speak what was true to them. Look at the cleansing of the temple and the money changers, I mean, look at the strength that's exercised there. What about sensitivity and compassion? Look how he would use little children as an illustration and beckon these children to him and hold them in his arms and bless them. Look at how he went after those who were suffering and had such compassion and a tender heart for them. Look at how he wept on three different occasions, three occasions. I think all of them were on the Mount of Olives, by the way. For him, the Mount of Olives was a mount of tears. Most important, you see his love and his mercy and his sensitivity and his compassion as he willingly sacrificed himself to save us from our sin. You know those two words that capture all that for Christ? And we say this about Christ in in a way that we don't say it about anybody else. He was both a lion and a what? A lamb. Both. Lion and a lamb. The lion, courageous, standing for truth, uh, the essence of truth, the gentle lamb who loved others and gave his life up on the cross to save sinners. used to be a song that i sang grace church many years ago rick with jerry and kelly the the lion and the lamb and they had those verses in there going back and forth how he the lion of judah and and who he was and the eyes like fire and the 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 god himself and yet the lamb suffered for others I guess I'm just saying this is what I need to be, this is what we need, this is what you need to be, it's what this church needs. This church needs to be full of men who get both sides of this. You know, a lot more you could say about it, but that this sums it up. We need men who are lion-hearted, lion-hearted and lamb-like to be leaders in the church, in our families, to lead your wife like a lion in that sense, standing up for what's right, but loving her. Lamb-like, sacrificing for her and your children, giving yourself up for their good. I really think that's the essence of these verses in First Corinthians 16, what it means to act like a man. I always want to go to Scripture first to find illustrations, but uh, i got to tell you that I'm, I'm also intrigued by history. And I like to read. I like to find those examples of manhood outside of Scripture I think that's a good thing for us to do. We need heroes, I think. Heroes are a good thing, models to look up to. Rick's office is kind of like that. It's like a museum in there. You know. Dead men on the wall, you know, and dead animals in there too, but you know, but these men, you know, who are heroes to you. Something funny happened at Grace Church many years ago. It didn't make the final cut of the video. But it was a video they made to surprise me. It was on some birthday that I had, my 50th. And uh, they interviewed people at the church like Rick and other staff members to say things about me and they made this video. and It was, it was meant to be funny and serious and all that. And They surprised me with it. But I think they, if I remember right, they, they filmed something with you and they had to edit it out. But what Rick did was when they interviewed him, he had these pictures on his wall of Martin Lloyd-Jones and Spurgeon, and, he, and he, they put up a picture of me in there, okay? And the camera was going down the line about his heroes, and he was saying funny things about me, and then it got to me and my, my picture on the wall there. It didn't make the final cut of the video. But I wish it had. I thought that was really funny. But I appreciate that, that he understands heroes, and he looks up to them as models. And I, I've been learning to do that. that heroes become signposts, Okay? signposts that of real men in real situations in real life that point us to manliness and manhood and give us hope and encourage and they point us to Christ and his word where we ultimately do find the strength and the courage and the tenderness that we need to have in his word. The world tries to push its heroes on us. They're pseudo-heroes. It's amazing. Uh, we have another word for the world's heroes. They're called celebrities, you know, And some of them are just famous for being famous. That's it. Celebrities are not really heroes necessarily. Celebrities can end up being just parasites that live off the culture in some way. And we become so fascinated with them. Heroes are different. Heroes impact the culture. Possibly. Possibly. I heard this illustration, celebrities are more like thermometers that reflect the culture and its temperature. Heroes are thermostats that seek to make a difference. So we can't really look to the world ultimately and lost people for the models we really need. And one reason is is how they distort these two sides. They distort both sides of this idea. They distort the courage and the strength and they distort the, the love and compassion the distortion of the strength, you know, and the courage—if you, you try to look for a model there—it ends up being somebody like Rambo. And I know that's kind of old now in our culture, but you know, Rambo or Terminator. Okay, there's a distortion of that side of it. It distorts this other side—the sensitivity and compassion. It, it ends up becoming something effeminate. So I like to look for heroes, and I like to read about them. Ideally, you look for men who are of the past because their story's over, you know. And uh, men who have died, not that we can't learn from men today, and I have heroes like that, but especially those whose lives are finished, because if you look at the whole story, you do see the good and the bad. You see it all. And I like that. So I know your pastor encourages you in this regard, that you should constantly be reading. And no doubt, a good portion of what you read ought to be biographies, people who have sacrificed and suffered and stood for truth. And you want to hang around with people like that because you get influenced by the people you hang around with. So hang around with some heroes like that. Have have three or four or five heroes that you could say, these are my heroes. I've studied them and here's what I've learned from these men. Be able to say that. Yeah, these are my heroes. So I've been been reading I, and I like to read war stories. I, I just like to read that when I'm just reading for my own enjoyment. So I want to tell you just about two or three or four heroes, three heroes or so that I've learned more about recently. Uh, I like models that come from war situations because it's such a, an incredible kind of adversity. And, and I don't know all of you, and maybe you have fought in wars and you know that firsthand. I, I have not. But I like to read about World War II and things like that and but lately I've been studying, reading more about the Civil War, just because of where I live, you know. I know it was here too, but there it's really there. And I've been reading about both sides, the, both northern and southern leaders and, and some freed slaves as well, a hero or two there. Very interesting time in our history, and it's amazing the kind of character that's demonstrated by God's people when they're in the most difficult and trying of circumstances like that. And I've I've become convinced that was a very difficult time in our history. But there are examples of Christian men on both sides of that, and you probably know that. Men who aren't perfect. I've learned some of their weaknesses and frailties as well, but they're still worth looking at. And so I'm going to tell you about two or three of those and what I've been reading about and listening to recently. Just a note about the Civil War. I have learned one thing. It's misunderstood by a lot of people. Some of the military leaders made famous by that war are very misunderstood as well, and people don't know the facts. But it's obviously a very touchy subject. You know, it's primarily because of the issue of slavery, and it's something we as Christians certainly should condemn, and we do condemn. And there's many things about that part of our history that's very sad, and it's a very embarrassing fact of our history, and all and so forth. But there was far more to all that time period in the Civil War than the issue of slavery. In fact. Again, many were taking sides in the Civil War based upon issues other than slavery. It just wasn't what drove them. And there were men and leaders on both sides who were followers of Christ fighting against one another. Strange thing to look at and study. There were men on both sides really even exemplifying what a man ought to be because the character of a man tends to come out then in times of difficulty. War represents one of the most difficult challenges a man face, can face. So let me let me give you a, a few stories that just have captured me recently about a couple of men from the south and a, a man from the north. So I'll be be equal here on that. So I'm not trying to say something politically here today. Okay. I'm talking about the men. Don't even try to determine whether they're right or wrong and the choices they made and which side they fought on and all that. But Thomas Jackson's one of those. I don't know if you've read much about Thomas Jackson been doing some reading on him, and I went recently to a little museum at, uh, where you can see some of his paraphernalia and the jacket he had on where he was shot and he was killed and all that, but Thomas Jackson was a confederate colonel who, with the men of the Virginia Army, uh, uh, at some point arrived at his first battle, okay? It was a battle at a ridge at a place called Manassas, okay? Now, the, stay with me for a second, and just Indulge me to talk about some of these heroes here and what I've learned recently. Uh, the Confederate Army, just get this in your mind, they're flanked. His unit is the only one standing at this place and there was a South Carolina brigade that was on the run fleeing. They'd already been fought, fighting valiantly and they're on the run now. They're overwhelmed, they're outnumbered, fleeing up a hill. And as their leader runs by Colonel Jackson, Colonel Jackson and his men on the way to fight... <laughs> this leader says to him from South Carolina, says, Colonel Jackson, it's all lost. I mean, there's nothing we can do. You know, flee for your life. And Jackson says, you get back to your men and tell them to get out there and fight, take a stand. Literally, he said, give, them, give the enemy the bayonet. Well, their commander got a little bit bolstered by some of those words, and along with another uh, company of men, they began to kind of get some courage and ready themselves to make another charge and they got themselves together and came back the right direction past the virginia brigade again with thomas jackson as the leader and the south carolina commander saw jackson again and turned to his men and said men there stands jackson like a stone wall," and that's where his name came from nicknamed stonewall jackson let's rally behind them and they did Well, it was at this battle that there's actually a famous picture of Jackson uh, holding his hands up in prayer. Jackson was known for that. He was a committed believer. And he had learned that according to 1 Timothy 2, that men pray with their hands up. And so he started doing that. In fact, the men in his troops used to say that we could always tell when we were about to go into a serious battle the next day because Jackson would be up late at night in his tent with his hands up praying about what was about to happen. And praying for safety and all that. So there's a famous picture of that. And he um, got his hands shot up. In fact, it was there that one of his fingers got shot off uh, while he was doing that, just so you'll know. So he encourages his men. That's where he got his name. Much courage there. But just something about that courage. I've learned that courage in times of responsibility or danger or whatever is definitely connected with my understanding of God's sovereignty. That God is a sovereign God and I can trust him for those things. And so one of his officers asked him, "You know, Colonel Jackson, how can you seem to be so serene and so confident and so courageous and so calm when there's so much adversity around you and there's so much death around us? And this is what he said, and this is kind of my point here. Jackson said this, My faith teaches me that because I believe in the Lord... I am as safe in the battlefield as I am in my bed. It matters not. If all men knew him, all would be equally brave and all would be equally ready when the time comes. He was a man of great courage, but it was connected to something something new about God, something new about God's sovereignty and God's providence. A man of courage, he was known for that. Standing out in front of the troops in the midst of battle, And my point is, I could give you a lot of examples of this, of how he had this tender side to him. How he had this tender side to him, even how he loved children and wanted children of his own. He lost a couple of children, lost a wife in childbirth. But at the end of some of the battles, Jackson was known for walking among the casualties and, and grieving over those who had been killed and taking some of those who would be wounded. There were several scenes of this, of kind of cradling these men in, the, in, the, in his arms as they died to encourage them. These men he had trained at Virginia Military Institute, telling others, we, we must never forget these kind of boys who sacrificed like this. My point is just a little insight of strength and determination and courage, and yet a man full of compassion and tenderness and sensitivity, understands patience and mercy and compassion. A lot of examples like that in him in the war. I'll say about another man though, Joshua Chamberlain. You know who Joshua Chamberlain is? From the North, the other side. Joshua Chamberlain, a military leader for the North, he was actually a professor of religion. He taught Bible at a place called Bowdoin College in Massachusetts, um, Maine. Maine, you know, start with an M. Wasn't Missouri? Knew that. Maine. But the point came where he gave up that post in this university to enlist in the army to go fight. What's interesting is when he did that, 13 fellow faculty members at Bowdoin College actually wrote a letter to the governor of Maine saying, whatever you do, do not put this man in any place of leadership. He has no capabilities whatsoever. Okay. He's unqualified to lead others. Well, he ended up, a lot of things I could tell you, ended up rising from lieutenant colonel to major general of the fifth court Corps. I don't have time necessarily to go into the, all this thing about the Battle of Little Round Top at Gettysburg, but an amazing story of courage. Absolute, unbelievable courage at the point of, of when they ran out of ammunition. If you've seen that scene, you know, they ran out of ammunition on top of this hill, and at the end of the Union line, if, if it caves there, if the Confederates get through there, they can take over the whole Union army as changed the complexion of Gettysburg. And he holds it and he holds it and he holds it and then he runs out of ammunition and he does the unthinkable and attaches bayonets and tells his men to charge down the hill with no ammunition basically. And They ended up destroying the enemy there and winning the day. This man a letter written about him. Whatever you do don't put him in a place of leadership. He doesn't know what he's doing. Just so you'll know he was wounded six times. Had six horses shot out from underneath him. He won the Congressional Medal of Honor. He was so respected by General Grant that when it was all over, Grant chose him to receive the surrender of the southern troops at Appomattox. Quite a leader. But here's the deal. He was a professing Christian, not a perfect man. I could give you some of his faults. But he was a professing Christian Exhibiting extraordinary character and leadership skill on several occasions. Let me just give you one other glimpse of his courage. And yet mixed into it with this idea of compassion. Now, he was fighting at a place, another place called Petersburg in 1864. I'm going to test you on some of these details. So make sure you get the dates and the locations down for the test at the end. Petersburg. Grant had almost gotten around... Lee in the south and I could tell you some amazing stories about Lee but Grant's armies had been stymied the the confederates were just too strong but he thought he saw an opening and so he sends an order down to General Joshua Chamberlain that you are to take your men and to make this charge I see an opening here. Chamberlain looked at the situation and knew there was no way And he sent word back up, basically saying, Sir, we're ready to make the charge, but it is going to fail. (laughs) The enemy is well fortified. And the word came back down. Grant to him, I want this war over. You make the charge and win the day. So Chamberlain was obedient, put his men together. He leads them out. First volley of bullets that come, basically hit the mark, and men go around him, fall all around him. I mean, just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds killed. And beside Chamberlain was the man holding the colors, you know, the flag. And that man was hit and fell. So Chamberlain, out in front, he was always out in front, he picks up the colors, and he pulls his sword now and keeps telling his men, go forward, go forward, go forward. And I'm not making a statement here about the brutality of war or anything else, whether it's right or wrong. I'm just telling you something about Chamberlain. Men, go to the top, follow me. And he's already determined, this, this is kind of a hopeless situation. follow me he hands the colors off to another soldier so he can lead his men and he turned around to to let the men see him that look I'm in front and I'm going and a 58 caliber bullet enters its right hip lodges all the way to the left but in between tumbled around through his intestines and just caused incredible damage his lower abdomen it's a gut shot which at that time was pretty much 95% fatal and he refused to be moved. Took his sword and stuck it in the ground and leaned against it so he could still stand up against it, so he could still tell his men, Let's go, men. I mean, follow me. Let's go to the top. I'm with you all the way. And the blood kept coming out so much and into his boots that he Finally, began to lose consciousness a little bit. He goes down to his knees and he readjusts his sword into the ground so he could lean against it, kneeling while he's bleeding to death. Again, raising his gun and just telling the men, stay with me, go, 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 until finally he blacked out completely. One of the artillery men saw him and sent some other of the artillery guys and they went down and got him and brought him back and to try to see what they can do for him because it's a mortal wound. And he wakes up in the midst of all of that and he tells them, men, I know this is a mortal wound. Don't take care of me. There are others out there that need your help. Go help those men. There are people who are shot and wounded and so forth. Go get them and take care of them. So in the midst of all that, compassion, sensitivity. Sensitivity. They tell him that we're under orders to take you and so they pick him up and they got him back from the line of fire. A surgeon from his old main unit, the 20th of Maine it was called, called, was there, Dr. Abner Shaw, began to do battlefield surgery on him back here behind the lines. What are you going to do? They cut him open. They find the bullet. Unbelievable wreckage they find inside his body. They begin hours of surgery, battlefield surgery. He's just in a coma. There's no anesthesia. He wakes up twice during the surgery and tells the doctor, keep going. Do what you have to do. It blacks out again. They finally sew him up, and at some point when it's all over, they tell him, we've we've done the best we can for you. It it is going to be fatal for you. They thought he would die. Uh, Just real interesting, real quick. uh, He... He didn't die, and I don't know that I can find. I have a copy of the letter. He wrote an incredible letter to his wife, um, believing he was dying at that time, and just making the point to her that, um, you know, he trusted the Lord and, and take courage and all that, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Wish I had the copy of that here. I have it somewhere in my iPad. I have no idea how to get to it. But um, the point is, he thought, they thought he would die, but he didn't. He didn't die. In fact, a few months later, he was fighting again. Unbelievable. He ended up with an early form of a catheter back in those days, an experimental kind of treatment. It was not pretty. And he fought infections and dealt with problems the rest of his life. Altogether, like I said, he was in about 20 battles, had six horses shot out from under him, was wounded himself six times. This was the most serious. But what's interesting is, after all this surgery, before he got back out there to battle again some months later, after he'd written the, wife, the letter to his wife that he, this was the end and, and we can rejoice over God's goodness to us in our lives and all that, he did survive so he could fight again. But in the midst of recuperating, one of his majors underneath him came up to him. And there's a famous statement, and this is the whole point, long story to make a single, simple point. I said, indulge me, these are some of my heroes. He said, General Chamberlain, this is what the major said, you are an amazing man. You're an amazing Christian man. And I'm paraphrasing, but here's, here are the, wor- here's the words. He said, here's, here's what's interesting about you. You have the soul of a lion and the heart of a woman. That's what he was known for the soul of a lion, and the heart of a woman. And so when I read that, I'm thinking, that really is both sides of 1 Corinthians 16. Courage, incredible courage, little round top, horses shot out from him, bleeding like that, wounded, going back out to battle. Just a Bible teacher at this college, you know, Clark Kent. A man they didn't even think would amount to something like that in the military, an amazing man. And here's something else interesting about him, and I'll wrap up here a little bit. Years later, after he received the uh, surrender at Appomattox, just real quickly, by the way, that was an amazing story, too. You see his, his courage in battle. You see his compassion even at that moment in surrender. He was, had no desire to embarrass those men and all those southern troops that were there, defeated, discouraged. And he did this amazing thing where he had all the Union troops salute them, salute the Southern troops. And there's a great picture right there of the one who was received, who was the Southern leader. It wasn't Lee there, but another general um, raised his horse up in the air and saluted back to the Northern troops. He had such compassion for these men that had suffered so much. He had no desire for vengeance or anything. But years later, they had a commemoration of the Battle of Gettysburg, and Chamberlain was asked to come back there and make a speech at the site of the battle, and there's a plaque there about where this speech was made. <clears throat> and in that speech, he was answering a question he'd been asked many times, and he was saying, how how can your men, how can any men like this exhibit such courage in the face of danger in the times of incredible adversely like this battle of Gettysburg, when their lives were on the line, how can men do something like that? And in the speech, he gives the answer, and here's what he said. We do not know the future, and we cannot plan for it too much, but we can hold our spirits and our bodies so pure and so high and we can cherish such thoughts and such ideals and dreams, such dreams of lofty purpose that we can determine and know what manner of men we will be whenever and wherever the hour stra- strikes that calls us to noble action. He says something else I'll read in just a moment. Let me paraphrase that. He's saying we can't plan for everything in the future. We can't determine what kind of men we're going to be though. We can dream such dreams. We can think such lofty thoughts. We can understand what the target is. We can know what's right. We can know what character is. We can exercise self-control on a daily basis that we can train our hearts to be a certain kind of man so that whenever and wherever the hour strikes that calls us into noble action, we will respond out of that because it's who we are. He says, we can do that and he says this no man no man becomes suddenly something different from his habit and his cherished thought you don't become a man like that in that hour necessarily out of the blue there's been something going on feeding your soul feeding your heart feeding your mind with these kind of things this is what manliness looks like so that when the pressure comes and the difficulty comes and the challenges come what's there will come out no man becomes suddenly something different from his habit and cherished thought. That's a very important concept for us to grasp. I could tell you so many stories about him and Lee and Jackson and others. But the reality is, we may never be in a place like that a war like that, but there are difficulties that we're going to face and test for us. There's tests in school, young men, every day. There's tests in our marriages. There's tests in our parenting. There's tests in the church. There's tests in the cause of the kingdom. And like Chamberlain said, you don't know what those days are and when they're going to come. We just know they're coming. And we can prepare ourselves ahead of time and know by God's grace what kind of man we're going to be at that moment because we don't become something different then. What's been in our heart and our mind comes out. So, how can I properly fill my heart and my mind so I can be ready for those difficult moments? How can I learn to act like a man? Well, obviously, it's nothing new under the sun, it starts with God's Word. We saturate ourselves with the truth of Scripture, accurately handling it. We, We learn the examples of other men in Scripture and other men in history that have lived these things out. We learn from them. And we practice the strength and the determination and the courage and the compassion in the little situations that come up every day that we face not knowing what the big one will be. Right now we do those things. In your duties at school, in your class, in your schoolwork, and with responsibilities at home, the tasks that your parents ask you to fulfill, and so forth. Right now, standing against sin and temptation and fighting temptation. Right now in our friendships, learning what it means to put other needs above our own, other people's needs above our own. Right now, in small ways, learning compassion, reaching out to those who have trouble relating to others and learning how to relate to them. Here at church, learning to lead out in serving, finding ways to serve and doing it and being faithful. So let me just wrap it all up and just give you a truism then to send you home with. This is a little axiom. It's a truism that I have learned recently from someone. Circumstances do not dictate your character. They reveal it and become the opportunity to refine it circumstances don't dictate your character whether you're going to be strong and courageous and compassionate circumstances don't dictate that circumstances reveal it but also give you the opportunity then to refine it and develop it so seek the lord's help We ask him to make us strong and courageous and determined and vigilant so we can embrace the responsibilities of life, whatever they're going to be, tomorrow, the next day, next year. We don't know what's coming, but something's coming. Start today and ask him as well to help you become sensitive and loving and compassionate so you can engage in the relationships of life. Obviously, I don't want to end without saying this and reminding you of this, that the pursuit of Christian manhood both sides of this has to begin with point A. And that is a genuine saving relationship with Christ. It starts there. When you come to be to Christ, to be saved from your sin, an incredible thing has happened. The, the Lord gives a new heart to people, a new heart with new desires, new dispensations. Dispositions. He cleanses you and gives you a whole new record. And all that can be manifested then in a new life. New life. So you must come to Christ. And I don't know each of you, but there certainly could be someone here that has not come to point A. Don't think you can be this man, this courageous and compassionate man just by changing some behavior. It has to start at point A. I must know this one who wrote this. You must come to Christ saying, Christ, I come turning from my sin, repenting of my sin. I put my trust in you alone for my salvation. and I want to live this new life for you out of a heart that loves you because you first loved me and have forgiven me. Start there. And if you are in Christ, if you are saved, then this is the life that a Christian man lives, both sides of it, and he can help you with that. Let's pray. Father, so many examples in this world of real men, men in battles, slaves freed, men in other situations in history, great men of the faith and church leaders in history, heroes that we can develop and look to. Lord, help us to do that. We need those kind of examples before us. Most of all, let us be captured by the example of Christ, the lion and the lamb, understanding that he perfectly manifested all this. We thank you for your word that gives us this teaching that tells us what you expect of us as men. And Lord, we come confessing that we struggle with one side of this. Maybe we struggle with the the vigilance or the courage or the determination. Maybe we failed in some way. Thank you that you're such a forgiving God. Or maybe we've failed on the side of relationships and seeking relationships and developing them and sustaining them as a loving man, a man who's tender and compassionate and merciful and patient. Maybe we've struggled and failed in that. Thank you for your forgiveness for what it is, but I pray for us here today. May we be this kind of man. May we act like men in this way so that we're an example to our wives, an example to our children, an example to the others in this church, an example to our friends around us, an example to the world of what Christ can do with a man, a fallen individual. How Christ can take that fallen man and Turn him into an example of Christian manhood. We seek your strength for this. We seek your help for this. And may we even be such an example that we can say to others, imitate me, follow me as I follow Christ. May others look at us someday and say, here's a man. Here's someone who understood Christian manhood and acted like a man. Strength and sensitivity. Help us to be that in Christ's name. Amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com.